Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. David and Goliath, if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. Uh, everyone loves an underdog story. And uh, since there's no Pac-12 football this year, uh, here's one for you from the annals of Beaver history. In 1967, the Oregon State University football team was ranked right in the middle of the Pac-8, and uh, no one was really talking about them. But halfway through the season, something unexpected happened. The Beavers came out of nowhere, and they beat Purdue, who at the time was the number two team in the country. And then, two weeks later, the Beavers beat UCLA, who was the new number two team in the country, and uh, they go undefeated against the top two top two teams, and their next game is against USC, who was ranked first in the country at the time. And so, here's the story. The Beavers are hosting the Trojans at Parker Stadium in Corvallis, which at the time is a town of about 20,000 people. On game day, 42,000 people show up and fill the stadium to standing room only. The game is so highly anticipated that the governors of both states, Oregon Governor Tom McCall and California Governor Ronald Reagan, are both in attendance at the game in Corvallis. The two governors even place wagers on the outcome. If the Beavers lose, McCall has to catch a salmon for Ronald Reagan, and if the Trojans lose, Reagan has to pick a box of California oranges for McCall. So, the Trojans show up in Corvallis undefeated, 8-0, outscoring their opponents by more than 20 points per game. They know the Beavers have been on a little hot streak, but everyone knows that USC is the best team in the country, mainly because they have the best player in the country, a running back named O.J. Simpson, who the next year would go on to win the Heisman Trophy and be the top pick in the NFL draft. By the way, I kid you not, Robert Kardashian is also at this game because he's USC's water boy, which is how he and Simpson first met. It's a true story. If I had time, I could tell you how all this is connected to eventually Bruce Jenner becoming Kanye West's mother-in-law, but that's another story. So... It's a rainy November day in Corvallis. Parker Stadium is packed, and the field is a mud pit. On USC's first play from scrimmage, they hand it off to OJ, and he goes around the end for 40 yards. It's not looking good for the Beavers. But the two teams keep battling in the mud. OJ ends up rushing for 188 yards, but somehow the Beavers' defense is able to keep him out of the end zone all game. So, there's three minutes left in the fourth quarter. The Beavers are up 3-0, but the Trojans have the ball, and they're driving down the field. They're at their own 35-yard line and plenty of time to score. They hand it off to OJ. He goes up the middle, and the Beaver linebacker hits him so hard that OJ fumbles the ball. Both teams pile on it, but the Beavs come away with possession. They get a couple first downs, they run out the clock, they take a knee, and they win the game. Oregon State 3, 
USC zero. Now, Parker Stadium is in absolute mayhem. The crowd is growing crazy. The students are rushing the field. And again, true story, Quentin Zelinsky, a 48-year-old horticulture professor at Oregon State, is one of at least three reported Beaver fans who are so excited they have heart attacks and die during the celebration. After the game, Governor Reagan complains that the field had been too muddy, and he issues a statement that the Pac-8 should require teams to cover their fields with a tarp when it rains, and he even offers to help OSU purchase a tarp, and he says that he would have his donation of $1 in the mail shortly. The Beavers coach, DeAndros, says in response that he would consider getting a tarp if USC got a couple of big box fans to blow out all the smog of the Coliseum. So Governor McCall never got his box of oranges. Uh, USC doesn't lose another game that season. They go on to win the Rose Bowl and become national championships. The, the Beavs finish out the year ranked number seven in the country and become the only team ever to this day to go undefeated against three top two ranked teams in one season. Of course, the Beavers wouldn't beat US, USC again for another 33 years until the year 2000, but that is the story of how the 1967 Oregon State Beavers became known as, Beaver fans what? The Giant Killers. The story of the Giant Killers. Everyone loves an underdog story, which is why our story today the story of David and Goliath is arguably the most famous story in the entire Bible. Most Westerners, even those who know nothing about the Bible or Judaism or Christianity, know something about David and Goliath. Malcolm Gladwell even wrote a book about it. And I would say, especially as Americans, we are drawn to stories of unlikely success. This little shepherd boy that conquers this great giant. There's something in us today that resonates with this 3,000-year-old Jewish war story. Because deep down, I think we all long to be giant killers. We've all got these giants that we face. Obstacles that stand in our way of fulfillment or achievement. Those things that we have to overcome in order to do or to get or to be what we want to be. And our giants may be internal, they may be external, they may be personal or they may be societal, they may be common or they may be rare, but we've all got giants and we all love the idea that just like David and just like the 67 Beeves, one day we could be giant killers too. But... As we come to this passage today, we have to be careful not to reduce this story into a self-help strategy. It's not that this story doesn't have something to say or something to teach us about overcoming the giants that we face. It absolutely does, but that's not the main thing that's going on here. The story of David and Goliath is set within a much larger story. So the context for the passage we're in at the beginning of 1 Samuel 17 tells us this, that the Israelites are at war with the Philistines and the two armies are faced off in a place called Soko. 
verse 1 tells us. And the Philistines are set up on one hill, and the Israelites are set up on another hill, and in between them is a valley, the valley of Elah. And so both sides are plotting, waiting, camping, anticipating this battle that is about to take place. And the Philistines make the first move. They issue a challenge, and the challenge is that instead of the two armies both fighting each other, each army would select one fighter, one soldier, to come out and to fight man on man, each representing a nation. And whoever wins that battle would win the war. It may sound strange to us, but this wasn't an uncommon way of doing battle at the time. And so the Philistines propose Man on man. And who do they choose? In 1 Samuel 17, we're told, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, remember that, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Okay, so here's the description. We're given in detail some of Goliath's stats. The Philistines choose their best warrior, and he is a nine foot nine tall giant of a man. He's wearing 125 pounds worth of armor, and he's carrying a javelin with a 15 pound spearhead on it. This guy is an absolute beast. And Goliath comes out and he issues this challenge. Who is going to fight me? And the Israelites are silent. So he goes back and he comes back the next day and the next and the next and every day for 40 days. Which if you remember, 40 is a number symbolic in the story of God for a season of testing or a season of trial for 40 days. Goliath comes out and he challenges the Israelites to send out a man to fight him. And for 40 days, no one wants to do it. No one wants to face the giant. But then, one day, the shepherd boy named David shows up. David's older brothers are there in the army. And he's there to deliver them food from home. He's basically the Uber Eats guy. And he's got a bunch of bread and cheese for his brothers. And while he's there delivering the food, he catches wind of what's going on with Goliath. And he starts asking questions. He finds out that this has been going on for 40 days. And none of the Israelites are courageous enough to step out and to face Goliath. And then he finds out that King Saul, the ruler of the Israelites, had said that if any man can beat Goliath, that the king was going to give that man his daughter in marriage, and that man and his family would be exempt from paying taxes. And David thinks that sounds pretty good. I'll get a wife, I'll be tax exempt. So he goes to the king and he volunteers to fight Goliath. And the king takes one look at this kid And goes, I'm not sending you out there. I'm not going to let you represent our nation and go be killed by this giant. But then David 
starts telling the king a little more about himself. He tells the king that, yeah, he may not have much military experience, but he does know how to handle himself. He tells the king that as a shepherd, he's had to fend off wild animals who've tried to attack his sheep. He tells him about the time where he killed a bear that was trying to eat one of his sheep and another time when he had killed a lion. And Saul is impressed. And after hearing all this, the king finally agrees to allow David to fight Goliath. So Saul takes David and he decks him out in his armor, the king's armor. As the king, Saul was likely the only Israelite that had a set of body armor. And we know from the text that Saul is a large man, head and shoulders above the other Israelites. And so when little David puts on all of King Saul's armor, David can barely move. So David takes it all off. He grabs his shepherd's staff in one hand and his sling in the other. And his sling, not a slingshot, but most likely two pieces of rope with a little pouch of leather in between them. And he goes down to the stream that runs along the side of the Valley of Elah, and he selects five smooth stones to use as ammo. Now, I have been to the Valley of Elah in Israel, in the West Bank. I've stood in this very valley And sure enough, even to this day, there's this dried up stream bed that runs right along one side of the valley. And if you go to my office on the bookshelf, you will see five about golf ball sized stones that I picked up from that stream bed. You'll notice they aren't very smooth because believe it or not, I'm not the only visitor to Israel that's had this idea. The smooth stones are pretty well combed through. Um... Either way, I've got them. And David chooses these five smooth stones and he goes out to meet Goliath. And as they're standing face to face, preparing to engage in battle, they start talking trash to each other. Goliath says that he's going to feed David to the birds. And then David says, you're coming at me with your big sword and your fancy armor, but I have something even better, David says. But David doesn't appeal to his experience in the shepherd or to his victories over the lion and the bear. David doesn't even appeal to his slingshot skills. What David says is that you're coming at me with all these weapons, but I'm coming against you in the name of the Lord Almighty. So now we start to understand a little bit more about what's going on in this story. The reason David volunteered to fight Goliath isn't just because he wanted to marry the king's daughter and get out of paying taxes. David's there because he knows God and he knows what God has promised. Here's what I mean. About 400 years before this, God had led his people out of the wilderness, through the Jordan River, and into the land of Canaan, or what we know as the promised land, the land that God had promised to his people so many years before. 
400 years later, God had led his people into the land of Canaan. But the problem was, this land, though it was lush and beautiful, it wasn't like they could just move in. This land had become the scene of a major military conflict. And all of the major players of the day, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the, Perv- the Perzazites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, they're all there battling for control of this beautiful plot of land. And sometimes we picture Israel as this amazing, impressive, well-stocked army. But the truth is, this is a nation of slaves. They had been slaves in Egypt. And then they'd spent the last 40 years wandering around homeless in the desert. This isn't an impressive military force. This is a ragtag group of vagrants. And so for the Israelites to show up in the land of Canaan and think that they're just going to be able to overpower all these armies and take over the land, it would have been ridiculous. From the very beginning, this is an underdog story. But God had promised Israel this land. And so they start fighting. And they start winning. By the way, if you have, if this story and these stories like these raise questions for you related to holy war and violence in the Old Testament, those are good, fair, and reasonable questions to ask. The book I would most highly recommend is The Skeletons in in God's Closet. The Skeletons in God's Closet by my good friend Josh Butler. Uh, He has an entire section on these stories of conquest that are are told in the books of Joshua and Judges. They're fair questions. I'm going to let Josh answer them for you later. In the book of Joshua, what we're told is that this unlikely crew of Israelites, they keep fighting and they keep winning and all of a sudden people start noticing and people start talking about them. Like nobody even knew who these guys were, but all of a sudden they start taking down these giant advanced armies. It's like the no-name school that makes the deep run in March Madness. And so a few of these rival nations decide to combine their armies. They're going to form this massive allegiance in order to put Israel in its place and take her out. But it doesn't work. Israel wins again, and now there's only one enemy army left, the Anakites. The Anakites are the only thing standing between Israel and taking possession of the land that God had promised them. They've been working their way through the land, claiming each square foot of promised land, and it's just this one last battle, this one last army the Anakites, that stand between them and the fulfillment of God's promises. We aren't given many details about the battle between the Israelites and the Anakites, but we are told what happened. In Joshua chapter 11, verse 21, it says that at that time, Joshua, who was the leader of the Israelites, destroyed the Anakites from the hill country, from Hebron, Debir, and Anab, from all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua totally destroyed them and their towns. No Anakites were left in Israel, Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. 
Did you recognize the names of any of those places? Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod? Where was Goliath from? Goliath was from Gath, if you remember. Which means that Goliath is one of the surviving Anakites. The Anakites had lost the battle and Israel had taken their promised land. But there were a few descendants of the Anakites that still roamed. Goliath is one of the survivors. So, here's what I'm getting at. When David steps out onto the battlefield that day, he does so knowing that he's fighting a war that has already been won. The battle between the Israelites and the Anakites had already been decided 400 years earlier. David knows that God has already fulfilled his promise that the Israelites would defeat the Anakites. And that is why he is not afraid. This battle has already been won. And so when David is standing there, face to face with this giant who's mocking him and telling him he's going to feed him to the birds, how does David reply? Look at verse 47 of 1 Samuel 17. David says, all those gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. The battle is the Lord's. David says, doesn't say that the battle is his or King Saul's, or the nations of Israel, he says, this battle is the Lord's to fight. In other words, David is telling Goliath, you're not fighting me, you're fighting God. This battle doesn't belong to me, this battle belongs to the Lord. In heavenly David is finishing what Joshua started. It is not David versus Goliath, it's Goliath versus God. Do you see what's happening here? Goliath doesn't just represent the random obstacles that we might face in life. He doesn't just represent the hurdles that we have to jump over in order to find fulfillment or achievement. Goliath represents the things that stand in the way of God's people receiving what already belongs to them. Goliath represents the things that stand in the way of God's people receiving what already belongs to them. The Israelites were already in possession of the promised land. It was already theirs. It was already their home. It was already their ultimate reality and the truest thing about them is that they were God's people living in God's place. It was already theirs. 
But there were still a few giants in the land. There were still a few forces that were trying to keep them from living fully and completely into the promises of God. So here's the thing. The giants don't all go away when we're born again, do they? It's not like when we come to Christ, all of a sudden, all of our problems, all of our struggles, all of our temptations, all of our sins, all of our failures, all of our fears, all of our doubts are just done away with completely. There's always a few giants that hang around. And for us here today, gathered as the church of Jesus Christ, God hasn't promised us land. He hasn't promised us cultural power. He hasn't promised us success or health or wealth. He hasn't promised that life is going to be easy and that things are going to go our way. He hasn't promised that we're going to succeed in whatever we put our mind to. But he has promised that he's never going to leave us and that he's never going to give up on us and that he is going to use every single part of our lives to transform us into people who look like Jesus. So we can't turn this into some sort of prosperity gospel message about overcoming our giants because God has promised us success. The promises of God for us today are even better. That God is committed to working out his purposes in our lives so that no matter what, we get to become like Christ. Our Father is always at his work. He's working together everything towards this end. But there's still giants. And they come in lots of different forms. They come in the form of anything that would get in the way of us living deeply into God's dreams for our life. Giants come in the form of those things that keep us from being completely occupied by the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Giants come in the form of those things that would compete with Christ for the deepest affections of our hearts or the highest allegiance of our trust. What are your giants? What do you look to instead of him? Who do you trust instead of him? What lies have you believed instead of believing the truth about who God is and who you are and the world? For some of us, many of us, one of the biggest giants that we face is our past. 
We struggle to reconcile how God could ever truly love or even like, forgive, or even use someone like us. Someone who's come from where we have, who's done what we've done, who's failed in the ways we've failed, who struggles in the ways we've struggled. There's this giant that cuts off the flow of grace to our hearts. And we struggle to believe that we can ever overcome it. But here's our biggest problem. It's not the giant itself. It's that we think this is our battle. We think that it's up to us alone. And we forget to remember that the battle belongs to the Lord. That God in Christ has already fought and won the war against sin. See, this David, the shepherd who defeats the giant who goes on to be the king of Israel, is ultimately a picture of another shepherd, another king. Another one who would be born in the city of Bethlehem. Another one who would be God's anointed to lead and set free his people. Yeah, there's still a few giants around. But when King Jesus let out his final words on the cross, it is finished, he meant it. That the war is over. It has been decided hundreds of years ago. Now, this doesn't mean we're not going to struggle, but it does mean that no matter how hard we struggle, we're not going to lose the war. It's already been won. The battle is the Lord's. He and he alone is the one who can save us. What does that mean then? What did it mean to David for him to declare that the battle is the Lord's? Well, I may, would ex- may have had expected him to say, the battle belongs to the Lord, so I'm going to sit back and see what happens. I'm going to let God do God's thing. This isn't my fight, this is God's fight. I don't trust myself, I trust in him, so God, you're the only one who can do this. I'm going to trust you. Go do it. The battle's the Lord's. But is that what it says? In the very next verse, after David declares that the battle belongs not to himself but to God, 1 Samuel 17, 48, as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. If the battle belongs to the Lord, then the implication isn't that we step back, that we remove ourselves, that we disengage and passively just kind of hope and pray that things get better. If the battle belongs to the Lord, 
And we know the Lord and we know who he is and what he's done to save us. And we know that the war has already been won in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. If the battle belongs to the Lord, then the correct response is to run into battle. Not afraid, but to charge forth in faith. What's so beautiful is that David realizes that God has been preparing him for this moment his entire life. As a shepherd, David, David was a nobody. He spent years in obscurity, out in, the, out in the wilderness with sheep. But all those years protecting the sheep, and we know also singing, praying, writing songs, writing the Psalms, all of these were practice for the moment when he would get to be the one to protect God's people from the Philistine. So it's not in spite of, but because of, of David's past. Because of all the seemingly mundane and meaningless years that he spent in the woods, all of it's coming into play now, and he sees that no part of his life has been wasted, that none of it was meaningless that God wants to take all that history, the good, the bad, the ugly, the high points, the low points, the things we're proud of and the things we're humiliated by. This whole life, God has been devoted to forming the image of Jesus within us. We talk about our story as B.C. and A.D., like that was my life before Christ as if God was somehow removed from that or not sovereign over it or not to be found within it. There is no BC. All of life belongs to Jesus, whether you knew him or not. God had been working out his purposes in David in ways David had no idea of. And as we face the giants of our past, whatever they may be, God is committed to using all of that for our good. And that good is that we would become people like Christ. And so this has very personal, psychological, emotional, and spiritual implications as we trust in Jesus to bring about reconciliation in our relationship with God and with ourselves. There are giants that we face internally, and we always will. But quickly, let me say this as well. I also believe that there are giants we face externally. That when Christ died on the cross, not only did he accomplish a way for us to be forgiven and adopted and united with Jesus and reconciled to God, but he also began a revolution to make all things new, to bring about the reconciliation of this whole world that he created and that he loves. 
And so therefore, as God's people living in God's world, under the lordship of Jesus, we are joining God on his mission to make all things new. And there are giants out there. Giants in the form of injustice. Giants in the form of evil. Giants in the form of oppression. And we don't have to look far. Specifically, we have been reminding ourselves of these giants of systemic racism and white supremacy that are prevalent within our world. And I'll be honest, I'll be the first to say, do we really think we can do anything about that? Is all of our preaching or all of our protesting ever going to fix our country or fix our society? In fact, somebody just told me the other day, yeah, racism is a huge problem, but the truth is only Jesus can fix it. Now, do we agree? Yes. There's no legislature that we can pass or whatever that's going to fix this problem. Only Jesus can heal this world. Only Jesus can fix humanity. So in other words, the battle belongs to the Lord. We can't reconcile all things, but Jesus can, and Jesus will. So if only Jesus can fix it, then is the response to go, well, nothing we can do. We can pray, I guess. We can hope for the best but there's nothing we can do. If the battle belongs to the Lord, then we run into the battle. With confidence, with the anointing of the Spirit as visitors from the future, citizens of the kingdom of heaven that are living here on earth. Yeah, this isn't our battle. We are no human, individual or institution can ever fix the world. Only Jesus. He is our only hope. He is the only hope of humanity, the only hope of the world. We can't fix the world, but we can change it. We can be part of what Jesus is doing. We can be part of proclaiming and announcing and demonstrating and embodying this new kingdom this new world that God is making. The battle belongs to Jesus, and in he alone we place our hope and our trust, and he has invited us to be part. So we run into battle. So here's the thing, church. We're not underdogs. Sometimes it feels like it. In my own battle with my own soul, with my own sin, with my own struggles, I often feel like an underdog. As somebody who's striving to be faithful to King Jesus in a very, very strange moment in history, sometimes it feels like we're underdogs. But the Bible tells us that he has given us every spiritual blessing in Christ 
that he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Not just that he will, but that he already has. We have already inherited the promised land, but we have to fight for it. Name your Goliath. Look it in the eye. By faith, recognize that you may be powerless against it, but that it is powerless against the blood of Jesus. Run towards the giant and cut off its head. If Jesus is the king, that's your job. We are not underdogs. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Love you guys.